If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one over there, download one from the app store on your phone. Uh, We've been walking through the book of Matthew together, uh, one of four books that deals with the life and teachings of Jesus. Uh, I want to start off by doing something a little bit different today. When I was at college, uh, I was taking biblical studies and was at a college that was non-denominational. So we got to experience the way that different Christian traditions actually do things. And one of the traditions that I really appreciated was this Anglican tradition. So anytime that scripture was read in kind of a formal setting like this, they had this reading kind of response thing that they did. So scripture would be read, and then the person who was reading would say, this is the word of the Lord, and the, the, the church family would say, thanks be to God. Oh, did I, did I die? Am I still here? I'm still here. Okay, perfect. All right, so... This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read our passage for today, and then I'm going to invite us to to respond. And there's a particular reason why I think this is important, because what we're doing today is we're not simply reading some ancient text. We're not simply reading something that is some great literary work of art. We're actually reading the very words of God. And that's actually a, a blessing for us. And so it just takes a, it gives us a chance to acknowledge that together. So starting in verse 5 of chapter 16, it says this, When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this amongst themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. All right, so I want to give us a, a little bit of a, a little bit of an understanding of what's going on here. Uh, so what we see is this passage is 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 actually uh, kind of I think perfectly placed. So what's happened just before is Jesus has this confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and you can go back and listen to that from last week. And then right before that is this feeding story. Jesus feeds four thousand people with seven loaves of bread. And, uh, and so when we hear, look at bread in, in the Bible, it's actually something that is thematically running through all of Scripture. It's not just talking about food. It has this theological significance to it. And we see it all the way back to the book of Exodus, where the, the people of Israel are out in the desert, and, and they're looking at God to provide for them. And he does. He provides bread for them. And, and what happens is bread becomes this sort of theological image that actually starts to develop throughout the scriptures at the time of Jesus that it actually has significance representing people's choice to either trust God for their provision or to not trust God for their provision. So even earlier in Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus reliving this scene as he goes out into the wilderness. And what happens is the devil comes and tempts him. What's the first thing he does? He says, hey, you're hungry. Turn this this, these rocks around you into bread. And what does you say? Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And, and then we see this continue on. Jesus tells his disciples, pray, 
give us this day our daily bread. What's he saying? They're saying regularly go to God, not just for bread. He's not saying get a loaf of rye or a loaf of whole wheat with 12 grains. He's saying go to God for your provision, for what you need in life. Start to trust in him. Make the choice to trust that he is the one who can provide for you. And so this story is sandwiched. See what I did there? <laughs> it's, it's sandwiched. We have uh, the story of the Pharisees and Sadducees sandwiched between two bread stories. And this is not unintentional. It's not unintentional. Matthew actually wants us to see that what's going on, but the, what's going on with the this, this Pharisees and the Sadducees is actually a poignant reminder of how we interact with God in our trust for him. And so, my daughter woke up at like 4.30 in the morning. Uh, I'm running on not as much gas as usual, so if we have a few of these moments, you're just going to have to bear with me. So starting off, it says, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. So right off the bat, forgot to take bread. That's Matthew keying us in. There's something significant going to be going on here to deal with people trusting in God for their provision. And, uh, and Jesus starts talking to the, the Pharisees, and, or to the disciples. And he says, be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So let me just set the scene for you. Jesus has had this deep confrontation and we, we've seen these confrontations continue to happen over and over again with the religious leaders and they've amped up every single time. And this is actually the last major confrontation we're gonna see before Jesus starts heading to Jerusalem where he will eventually go to the cross. And every time he has this confrontation, because he's not ready to go to the cross yet, he gets some space between him and the people he's, he's, who've been confronting him. And so he does that again. He jumps in a boat with his disciples. He's like, okay, Pharisees, Sadducees, we're going to put a little space between you to make sure things kind of smooth out here for a season before I, I start moving towards the cross. And, and there's these guys. And I mean, I don't know what picture you get of the disciples in your head, but we're not talking about like, little dudes with soft hands here. Like, these are rough and tumble guys. I have a, a buddy who's part of our church. His name's Quentin. I don't think he's here today, but uh, Quentin uh, did this thing that he learned in, in Newfoundland. He lived in Newfoundland for about a decade. And uh, any new, yeah, for some Newfie fans, excellent. <laughs> so there's this tradition that Newfies have, and I think it's actually a great tradition. We should probably adopt it in West Village. It's called a diaper party. So when your buddy's significant other gets pregnant, uh, she gets a, a baby shower. But what happens for the dudes? We get left out. I mean, we got to do a lot of work, guys. We got to hold her hand while she's pushing. Like, we suffer, okay? <laughs> so they have this great tradition. And what is it? You throw a big party and everyone just brings diapers. And you basically try and get the whole first year of diapers covered. Diapers are expensive. That's a, a massive blessing. So Quentin moves back here. He grew up in Victoria, and one of his buddies, uh, his buddies, uh, his, his uh, wife gets pregnant, and they're going to have a baby. So he's like, man, I, I'm going to bring this party to Victoria for my buddy. We're going to have a diaper party. So he invites me to this diaper party, and I get there, and I cannot believe the amount of food that he has. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, coronavirus is empty in Costco. I think Quentin actually emptied Costco even more for this party. So I get there, and, and there's like, you know, 15, 20 guys. And again, we're not talking about like newfies, okay? We're talking about like biomedical engineers. Like, what do you do? I like design microscopic systems to help people's like, I don't know, the guy was telling me about it. He's like, 
there's this invention where you like cut someone's tendon. Like that's the kind of stuff he works on. Like, you know, a little piece of wire to cut someone's tendon. So these guys are, they are soft hands, okay? And, and Quentin's used to Newfie parties where, I mean, I, I don't know a ton about Newfies. I live on the other coast, but I'm guessing these guys like, you know, they work on rigs or they work in industrial settings. Uh, they, you know, they hunt their food off of the ice, like blue collar guys. These are the kind of guys that Jesus is rolling with. They're fishermen. Like they are used to going out and doing a hard, hard day's labor. And these are like 20, you know, maybe teens, 30 year old guys. I mean, so you think about it, you got 12, like 12, 20 year old young men in your boat and you don't got food. Yeah. You got a problem. You got a bit of a problem. So food is burning on the brain. So uh, Matthew's setting up this setting for us. And he's like, okay, these guys, they're getting on the boat. And Jesus starts talking about something that remotely sounds about food. And what's going on in their head? They're suddenly being like, we don't got food. What are we going to do? So this this is what happens. Jesus says, uh, Jesus says to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they start discussing amongst themselves is because we didn't bring bread. And they totally miss the point. And they think Jesus is talking about food. And he's like, no, I'm I'm not talking about food, guys. I'm talking about the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew makes that point that they finally get it at the end. That the yeast that Jesus is talking about is the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. So what, what is this teaching? And we know from Matthew's book that it can't be all the teaching because later Jesus is actually going to speak about some of the direct teachings of the Pharisees that he agrees with, that he says these are actually true things that you should follow. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't in agreement. We talked about that last week. They're like liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, like completely opposite ends of the, the, of the spectrum. So what is this teaching that Jesus is warning them about? Well, we know from last week that the teaching was there teaching the crowds to be in opposition of Jesus, that they had this concentrated effort in the public sphere to discredit Jesus' words and his work, to discredit who he was. And we see this throughout Matthew's gospel. I mean, just, just to remind us of some of what we've seen so far, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has a very similar confrontation to what we saw last week. The Pharisees and the scribes come up to him. They say, give us a sign, Jesus. Show us, prove to us that you are who you say you are. What are they trying to do in that moment? They're trying to discredit Jesus in the public sphere. They're they're starting to plant little seeds of doubt into who Jesus is to all the people around them. And it doesn't seem like such a big deal. Even, Even another part of that, Jesus is casting out demons and the Pharisees come up and they say, well, Jesus, I think, the, the real power that you're getting to cast out demons is actually from Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Like, they're saying, you know, your authority, it's actually not from God. It, it's from something else. And there's this concentrated effort that they have to try and discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. And then we get this metaphor that Jesus used to describe what's going on here. It's the metaphor of yeast or leaven. I'm not a baker by any means, uh, but I have baked uh, for uh, different points of my life, and then I got married, so I don't have to bake anymore, which is great. <laughs> oh, my wife is giving me the death glare. I'm in trouble. 
Um, but one of the things that I have noticed uh, in, in some of my past baking excursions is how yeast works. And if you haven't baked, you might not uh, know this, but yeast is really interesting in dough. You put it in, and it seems like such an inconsequential part of the, the, the process. Like, you have this mass of like four or five cups of flour, you throw some other stuff in there, and then you get maybe a tablespoon or two of yeast and at first, it doesn't seem like it's going to do anything, but over time, it starts to work its way through the dough, and it actually causes the dough to rise, rise, and expand, and blow up. And what Jesus is saying is this teaching, it doesn't actually sound like it's going to have a big effect at first. It's these little comments here and there, but they have this ability, just like yeast, to start working their way through the people that Jesus is ministering to. So at this point, the crowd seem very excited about Jesus. They're generally positive. But where do we see this culminate? We see this culminate when Jesus goes to Jerusalem and the crowd suddenly turn on him and say, crucify him. His blood be on us and our children. And the end result of the Pharisees' work to discredit who Jesus is actually leads to the people rejecting Jesus. Now, if this sounds like a familiar story to you, that's because it is. I mean, if we go all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Genesis chapter 3. Just to give you some background, if you're not familiar with the story, the way that the Bible starts is it, it has this beautiful, beautiful, uh, just poetic imagery of God creating the heavens and the earth. And he creates all things, creates the universe, creates the stars. And, and as the kind of the ultimate, to the peak of creation, he creates human beings in his image. And he says, hey, human beings, you're actually made in such a way that I'm calling you to rule and reign on my behalf over all of creation. And and God says it's very good. And he says, you can have everything, everything. But there's this one tree I'm going to put in the middle of the garden. That tree represents the choice to follow me and allow me to be the one who defines what's good and evil. It's a choice of trust. It's you saying, hey, God, I actually trust you to be in charge. He says, all I'm asking is that you trust me. Everything in this garden is yours. So listen to what happens. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the, saw that the fruit was, of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and they ate it. What's going on here? Well, if we look at what's happening, Satan's doing exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing. He's starting to plant seeds of doubt in who God is. Right away, he starts off with this question. Did God really say? Now, if 
we look back, we know that that's not at all what God said. God didn't say you can't eat from any tree, but, but he's starting to, to start to plant the seed of doubt in God's character. Is God really as good as you think he is? And of course, the woman, not really thinking through what's going on here, says, no, that's, that's not what God said. God said, you can, you can eat from any tree except for this one. But he did say, don't eat from this one because if you do, you're going to be cut off from me, the author of life. You'll experience death. And what does the serpent say? The serpent says, you will not certainly die. And then he puts something in front of the woman's eyes. He says, God knows that if you pick from this tree, that you're going to be like him. What's he doing there? He's starting to plant the seed of doubt in God's goodness, in God's motivation. He's saying, God's actually holding back something from you. There's something that you really want that, that God's not going to give you. We talked about last week how the Pharisees, they could see Jesus, but they couldn't see him. And the reason they couldn't see him is because they had this expectation for what he was supposed to be like. They wanted something from Jesus. And so they ask him, and Jesus, show us a sign. Do for us what we want. God, I want to know good and evil. I want to be the one who gets to decide that you're holding something back from me. And eventually, that seed of doubt in Jesus' goodness starts to spread through the entire people and the expectations of what Jesus is supposed to be like, they culminate. And so we see at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus marches into Jerusalem and people are excited. They're screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king has come. But Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. They expect him to clean the Romans out of Israel and instead... He cleans the temple. They expect him to confront Caesar, and instead he confronts the religious establishment. But church, isn't this so common for us? And we come to Jesus, we come to God, and we think, there's there's something that you have that I want. There's an expectation that I have of what you're supposed to be like. And there's this, this sickness that I'm dealing with, and I want you to heal it. But Jesus says, I'm actually more concerned about healing the sickness in your heart. So I'm going to allow this to be here for a time to grow you. Oh, Jesus, you're not good. I can't, I can't follow you. I can't trust you. You're not, you're not good feel that? That plant, that little seed of doubt, and it starts to work in our hearts. And what happens when it comes to fruition, when it comes to full fruition? We reject him. I've been reading a lot of deconstruction, uh, deconversion stories this week. Uh, People who have been part of the church, grown up in the church, and and walked away from it. And, And it's very interesting, as you listen to these stories, most of the time, what you hear is these people 
who have this deconversion moment, they've grown up believing that God is a certain way. And the reality is most of the time it's not actually even based on what the Bible describes. It's based on kind of the church culture that they've grown up with. And then they start to interact with the world outside of the, the bubble of their church. And they start to realize, oh, the world doesn't function the way I thought it would. And instead of pressing in and being like, God, how does this help me understand you more? How does this push me back into your word? They say, I'm going to throw it all out because God didn't meet my expectations of who he was supposed to be. We have this uh, book that we sell, The Connect Desk. It's called You Can Change, and it's by an author named Tim Chester. Highly recommend it. And, And he actually works through in this book how these seeds of doubt take place in our mind. And he says this, and I think it's helpful for us as we start to unpack what's going on here. He says, our double sin is this. First, rejecting the truth of God's greatness and goodness. And second, placing our affections elsewhere. What happens in the garden? Eve and Adam, they they don't believe that God is actually as good as he says he is. God said, this is all good. This is all you need. And they start to say, no, I think I need something else. I think I need the power to define good and evil. And then what happens is they start to desire it more than they desire God. They desire the fruit. They desire the power that comes with the fruit. And they say, man, God, I'm going to reject you and place the fruit. And this is exactly what the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is producing in the Jewish people. And this is exactly what Jesus' warning is to his disciples. And so we see that it, really there's two things that happen here. Number, number one is there's an unbelief that gets developed in who God is. And number two, there's something else that we start to worship. And this happens for all of us. Even if we've been a Christian for your whole life, any time that you choose to reject God's way, or you choose to trust something other than him, that stems from a reality that you forget something that's true, that you believe something that's not true. We talk about this in terms of four G's, four eternal truths of who God is, but, but you could flip them around and say these also produce, uh, sin is also the product of four unbeliefs. So first thing, God is great, but a lot, a lot of times we don't believe that God is great. We actually don't believe that God's in control of the world. And so we start to try and control it ourselves and we have to manipulate people. Why do we speed? Like, like think about it. Why do we speed? It's because we feel like we have to be in control of something. That if I don't get to this place five minutes earlier, the world is going to end. Number two, we don't believe that God is good. And so we start looking at other things that are going to satisfy us. We start to look at people or entertainment or, uh, or experiences. Number three, We don't believe that God is glorious, and glorious is this word that means weighty. And so we look at other people, other systems, or other things, and we think, oh man, those things are more powerful than God. Those are the things that are going to define me. Or we believe that God isn't gracious, and so we constantly are trying to earn his approval, earn our own approval, or earn the approval of other people. And then that leads to worshiping other things. Let me just play this out for you in just in one sense. Looking at God as not good. What happens when we start to see God as not good? Well, we start to look elsewhere for our satisfaction. How does an addiction to porn start? It starts by this basic belief that there's this thing that's going to satisfy me. 
that I need it. Any addiction starts that way. Addiction to social media. This is the thing that's going to make me feel good inside. And soon it becomes this God that we don't even control because it has control of us. Entertainment's the same way. Why do we binge watch Netflix or Disney Plus? Because there's this thing in the back of our head that says, I need this. I need this to make me feel happy at the end of the day. I can't relax unless I have this thing. And we start to worship it. It gets our time. It gets our energy. We get emotionally invested in fictitious characters. And we put this same pressure on our relationships We look at our spouse and this person is supposed to satisfy me and make me feel good all the time and then they don't because they're human. They're doing what only God can do. They're not doing what only God can do because they're human and they can't. And then we get angry and frustrated. Same is true with wealth and security, with experiences, with with anything. And the way that you can look into your life and ask, what is going on here? The way that you can diagnose if if this is true of you, if you've fallen into this trap where that yeast of the Pharisees has started to build this doubt in who God is and what he's done and, and it's actually causing you to look elsewhere, look at the fruit of your life. The Bible sets this, this, uh, metaphor of fruit. And on one side, they call it the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And then there's the fruit of the flesh, the fruit of our unbelief, the fruit of the, the, the things that actually can't satisfy us, where we try and put them in the place of God, and yet they actually can't fulfill what only God can fulfill. And the fruit of that is frustration, shame, guilt, anger, hatred, And so we go back to the text. We have this interesting story. The disciples are traveling with Jesus, and they've just heard him say, hey, be on guard for the east of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what's their initial response? Worry. Worry. It's it's not a good fruit response. And this is crazy. I mean, literally, They have just come from a place where they've seen Jesus provide food out of seven loaves for 4,000 men, not including women and children. So maybe 10, 15,000 people. And they start worrying that they don't have bread on the boat in that moment. What have they done? They have failed to believe what's true about Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. You of little faith. Why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? Do you ever get into that place of worry? Finances get a little tight. Something's not working out the way you would plan it to. And Jesus comes and says, do you still not understand? Don't you yet know who I am? 
they forget all that they've seen Jesus do. But then he does something very important. He reminds them. He reminds them of what's true. Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Jesus points back and he says, don't forget what you've actually seen me do. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning, bread is not this uh, just random, random image. This is a thematic image in the Bible. And so when Jesus points back to this, he's not simply saying, don't you remember this moment? He's, he's actually saying, don't you remember the significance of these moments? The way that they look exactly like what happened to Moses with Moses and the people of Israel when God provided manna for them. Don't you remember that their response was one of unbelief? They didn't believe God, and yet he was gracious and provided for them more than they even knew that they needed. He's saying, don't you recognize who I am? Do you not yet believe? Are you still in the garden looking at the fruit over there and thinking, that's what I need? When I've given you everything. In John's gospel, uh, Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, has this whole conversation with his disciples, and he, he ends up saying, I am the bread of life. You see, in this moment, what's going on is the disciples aren't just hungry. There's a spiritual hunger that they're looking to satisfy with temporal experiences, with temporary bread. When they have the one who can satisfy the eternal hunger right there in the boat with them, and instead of looking to him to satisfy them, they're getting distracted by thinking about their stomachs. But this is so, so true of us. David Turner, who's a scholar, wrote on this. He has this really helpful quote, I think. It's a helpful reminder for us. He says this, This rebuke of the forgetful disciples should sharpen the mental and spiritual focus of God's people today. So he's saying, for for those of us who are reading this, this should be a little bit of a, a light switch going on. Preoccupation with temporal and material concerns continues to render disciples dull and forgetful of the values of the kingdom and the false teaching that endangers it. What's Turner's point? He's saying the disciples were so concentrated on this temporary concern of their hunger that they missed both who Jesus was, but also how the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was being at work even then in their hearts. And we do this all the time. We allow temporary things to distract us from the eternal. I have an example from this week. Uh, for those of you who know me, you know I'm a little bit like OCD about things. Uh, people who work with me, they, they suffer greatly, and I apologize. Um, you like it sometimes when I get a lot of stuff done well, and then other times when I'm nitpicking you, you're probably not super excited about it. And my wife suffers more than anyone else, and so you can pray for her. Um, and so this week, uh, we had this a little bit of a confrontation, a little bit of a marital tiff, as uh, 
I'm sure those of you who are married are prone to have it from time to time. Uh, so what happened was uh, I, I, uh, we were doing laundry together. We we're folding laundry and we we're going to hang out. We hadn't had a, a lot of time to spend time together. And uh, my brother and sister-in-law had been visiting with us and they left and, and the bed that they had used hadn't been remade yet. And I am like, I don't leave the house unless the bed's made. Like I'm one of those people. Like, you know, I subscribe to like, all of your life is going to be a mess if you don't start off by making your bed in the morning. So I'm pretty, pretty dialed in with those kind of things. And the same as my house. I have like laminate flooring. It's super light colored wood. And so every little speck of dirt kind of, you just notice it. And it drives me absolutely crazy. So Shannon wants to hang out and we're sitting, uh, folding laundry. And then I go out to do something on the way back. I notice that the bed's not made. I'm like, I have to make this bed. So I go in to make it. And Shannon's like, hey, aren't we hanging out? don't you want to spend time with me? I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I need to make the bed first. Well, this, of course, caused a whole, you know, whole thing. It was a whole thing. But the next day, we actually got to sit down and chat through it. And, and she did something that I think was really helpful. She actually started to gospel me through this. Here's what happened. She said, Andrew, why are you, why are you doing this? And I, I've noticed not just this, but I've noticed that now, like, every night, you're, like, sweeping and vacuuming, even if I've, like, swept already that day. And I was like, well, I can't relax unless the house is clean. And she's like, that's, that's actually an issue. Because the house is always going to be dirty. And there are times when it's actually important for you not to clean it, to do things that are more important, like spend time with me. Where do you find that source of rest? It's not going to be a clean house. That's not going to satisfy you. And she started to unpack it for me. I started to realize, yeah, I actually don't believe that God's good. In that moment, functionally, I don't. Because I can't rest in his goodness. I have to create it for myself. I have to create my own Eden. I have to organize and order my house before I can relax and rest. And Shannon actually pointed that out to me and said, Andrew, in this moment, you're, you're actually functionally not believing Jesus. And you're actually distracted from how that's not only affecting you, but how that now is floating out of you in bad fruit and affecting the rest of us in this house who have to live with you. It's hard words to hear, but such a good illustration as I was working through is to be like, yeah, this is true of my life. This happens for all of us. I think about one of the things we talk about often in this church, which is being on mission. In a lot of times, the way that we go on mission is we stop believing that God's in control. And so we take the weight of mission upon ourselves. I do this all the time. Maybe you find this too. And I worry deeply. Like if I say the wrong thing, someone might not know Jesus. Sam, that's crazy talk. Do you change someone's heart? Can you truly convince someone to move from a place of being isolated from God to a place of being found with him? No, you can't. It doesn't rely on you. And yet functionally in that moment, you're saying, yes, it does. Many people pleasers in the house? Yeah, a few of you. I'm going to pick on you for a second. I'm not a people pleaser, but uh, I live with one, so it's great. <laughs> um, People pleasers, this is interesting. There's, there's kind of two ways that I think unbelief works itself out in people pleasers. Number one, uh, you feel like you have to be the functional hero of everyone's story. So someone asks you to do something, you're like, yes, I have to do it. Because if I don't do it, it's never, like, it's, the world's going to end. 
And so you start to feel like you have to be the functional hero of everyone's life. And what happens is you take this weight upon yourself and suddenly you get to this point where you're like, I can't do it. Well, what is that? That's the result of our own belief that God's actually in control, that he's actually great. There's a, a second thing that happens in people please their lives. You actually are worried about what people think. And so you want to make everyone happy. You want to keep everyone pleased with you. And so you say yes to everything, even when you probably should say no. Why is that? It's because you care more about what those people say about you than what God says about you. You start to worship them instead of him. It's like Adam and Eve looking at the fruit and saying, "Mm, God, you're okay, but that looks really good. And this is all ways that we try and satisfy our spiritual hunger with bread that has no capacity to fill us. So what's the antidote? Well, the antidote is the gospel. That's what Jesus does here. He goes back with his disciples and says, guys, you need to look back at me. The gospel is the difference between living fully satisfied and living hungry. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, that's not simply asking Jesus to provide for us a meal. It's asking him to provide for us everything. And I just want to remind us of what's true of the gospel, just in case we need to hear it again. And I think we do. I think we need to hear it regularly just the implications that that brings to our life. What are the implications of recognizing that Jesus lived the perfect life that we were meant to live? And that's the gospel. That's what this says, that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf. It means that every time you think, I have to do more, every time you think, I haven't done enough, Jesus says, you have. Not because you did, but because I did. But Jesus, I got to do this other thing. Nope, you don't. I did it. It's finished. And Jesus died the death that we deserve. Jesus, I I can't come to you. I got to make myself right. I feel this deep shame and guilt. Well, guess what? You don't need to because I took that shame and guilt upon my own shoulders at the cross. Church, there is something so sweet about colossally messing up having a huge blowout at your wife, going to something that you know is unhealthy, and our initial response is to take that shame and guilt upon ourselves and say, I got to get myself right. But the gospel is a good news message that you don't because Jesus did. That you can get down on your knees and approach God in that moment and say, Jesus, thank you that you took this on your shoulders at the cross, that there is nothing that I can ever do to pay for it because it has already been paid for. And not only did Jesus die the death that we deserve, that Jesus rose and conquered death. What does that mean? It means there's the coronavirus out there. Guess what? Jesus conquered death. Yeah. Do we need to be scared of the coronavirus? No, why? Because Jesus conquered death. 
We live in a country that is free, but there are people who are Christians who live in countries where they might actually experience death. And are they afraid? No, because they actually believe in their souls that Jesus conquered death. That means what's the worst thing that you can do to me? Kill me? Guess what? Jesus already conquered it. Tough luck. You don't get to kill me because I'm going to live with him for eternity. What happens when we actually believe this is true? What changes in our hearts? We live without fear. Do we believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? Does Donald Trump have all authority? No. Does Justin Trudeau have, Trudeau have authority? No. Does Vladimir Putin have authority? No. Guess who does? Jesus has authority. That means when the politics aren't going your way, is it a big deal? No, because Jesus has authority. When we start to believe that that is true, it changes the way that we live. When we start to recognize that there is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, speaking a better word over our life, anytime someone says something to us that is hurtful, we get to know that there is a God who loves us, who says, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are created in my image, and you are very good. When that actually is something that we believe, nothing else matters. Friends, this is a truth of the gospel. Do you feel it? I submit to you, if, if you don't feel it in this moment, it might be because the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees has taken deep root in your life. And when this is true, when this gospel truth is actually true, it, it actually does something to us. It leads to a response. And the first response is what we would call repentance. Repentance is simply turning from what is untrue back to what is true. Saying, God, I've believed that my spouse is the person who's going to find, who's going to produce goodness for me. I'm going to turn from that and trust you. Jesus, I believe that this political system is the thing that's in control. I'm going to turn from that, and I'm actually going to trust you. And we do that through faith, through actually believing that God is good, that he's great, that he's gracious, and that he is glorious. But here's the reality. On our own, we can't. D.A. Carson, he's a, a scholar and a theologian. I won't do this full quote, but he makes this really interesting point. I want to finish off with this idea. He says that if you look at how the Pharisees and the Sadducees interact with Jesus, that there's something going on, that they are actually trying to manipulate Jesus to do what they want to prove himself. They're using earthly human means to try and get Jesus to show who he is. And in this very next section that we're going to go through next week, we have a very different picture. Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. And Peter will say, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, this wasn't by men that you figured this out. This was because my father actually told you. And what Jesus is saying is the only way that we change from Unbelief to belief is if the Holy Spirit, if God himself actually does a work in our heart. 
And so how do we, as a church, regularly create space for that spirit to work in us? There's a few simple things that the church throughout time has said. These things actually help create that space. Getting into this. Every day, getting into the Bible. Why? Because the Bible is the story. The story that reminds us regularly what Jesus has done for us and who he is. All the Old Testament points to him. All the New Testament points back at him. I love it. There's these times where I forget, like I just shared one with you, uh, with Shannon and I, you know, as a parent, as a, as a worker, you know, as someone who works with other people. And six o'clock in the morning, I wake up, I sit down, have a glass of water because I don't drink coffee. And, uh, and I get into this and I just start to read. And so often the spirit just says, hey, the reason that you acted that way is because you were believing this about who I am. And that's not true. Let me remind you. And I read through and I read about how great God is and, and I'm reminded of what he's done for me. And I oftentimes have to go back and apologize and repent to other people and say, hey, I was acting out of this motivation. I was acting out of this unbelief. Prayer. Creating space in our life where we allow the Spirit to actually speak into our hearts. You know, reading the Bible and prayer, you can do that, and it can be an exercise in futility. They, in and of themselves, are not going to transform you. But there are spaces where the Spirit actually works in our hearts and can reveal the gospel to us. And this is why we're trying as a church to encourage everyone to get into a DNA group. Not because DNA groups are going to be the place that saves you. That's that could just be regular bread for you. Just something that you check off your list and think that it's going to make you happy. No, a DNA group is not going to fix you, but what it can do is create a space regularly in your week where you get together with other believers who can point you to the gospel as you discover what the word of God says about who he is and what he's done, and then allow that truth to nurture your heart. And as it does, it starts to change your actions. Trust me, when we talk about things like going on mission together as a church, man, if we don't have that gospel, we're going to burn ourselves out because we're going to start to take that weight on ourselves and mission is just going to become one other form of temporary bread if it's not coming out of a place of being satisfied by the bread of life. Finally, we just need to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he's done, not just in a cosmic sense, but on the daily basis. One of my biggest struggles, one of my biggest areas of unbelief is around finances. Like I'm a, a, you know, a budgeter and I'm constantly worrying about, you know, how we're doing financially uh, when things are tight. And one of the things that Shannon and I have done that's been helpful is we just go back and tell stories about how God has already been faithful to us how we've gotten to where we've gotten, not because of what we've done or how good we are, but because of who he is and what he's done. And that reminds us of what he's like, that he is good, that he is in control. I want to finish off before we respond with just one last quote, and I think it is just an invitation for us together. This comes again from Tim Chester, and you can change. He says, the key to change 
is continually returning to the cross. At the cross, we see the source of our sanctification, the source of what makes us holy. At the cross, we find the grace, power, and delight in God. We need to overcome sin. The secret to change is to renew your love for Christ as you see him crucified in your place. We're going to get a chance to respond to, to that reality. We're going to get a chance to sing about it. And when we sing, we're not just making beautiful sounds. I encourage you to look at the, the words. The words proclaim to our hearts, if we let it, what's true about Jesus. We're going to get to respond through giving. One of the things that we so often look to to satisfy us is our money, what it can get for us, what it can do for us. But it's false fruit. It's temporary bread. And every week, we actually say, that's what we believe. Because we believe that that is not going to satisfy us, we feel okay about entrusting it to God because we trust that he's the one who can provide for us, that he is the one that can satisfy us. And we're going to take communion together. And as you take that cracker and dip it in to the wine or the grape juice, you're reminded that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, died the death that you deserved, rose and conquered death on your behalf, that he has all authority and that he sits in heaven speaking a better word over us. Every week, this doesn't save us, but it points us to the one who did. And finally, Ken and Rena are here, I believe, uh, and they just want to pray for you. So if you're at a place where you're like, man, I, I need to go to the one who can actually save me. I've been looking at temporary fruit. The yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees has been taking root in my life. I just need to, to repent of that. And please chat with Kenarina. Come chat with Chris, myself, or the person beside you. They'd love to pray with you, I'm sure. Let me close in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you that you are a good God. So often we're like the disciples. We're on the boat and all we can think about is what we don't have in that moment. Or Father, we buy into the lies of the, the serpent. We look at you and we have expectations about what you should be like. And we think in our wisdom that we know what's best and then you do something that is unexpected and, and we start to doubt your goodness and we reject you. But Father, I'm really thankful that you didn't reject us. Now you invite us, even when we look to all the wrong things to feed us, to come and feast on you, the bread of life. And so, Father, as we come before your table, I just ask that it would be a, a beautiful reminder of our need for you. Amen.